What is the uh, obsession with the royals, Matt? I don't have an obsession with royals. I love the fact that you can buy a mug from 1937. It's still intact, and uh, we just use them as normal mugs. When this thing was made, it had no idea that it was ever going to go in a dishwasher. Because <laughs> dishwashers didn't exist then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, this one's... I think this is one of the oldest ones I've got, 1937. I got this one as well. This was my morning coffee. <laughs> Out comes the mug collection. Oh, my God. It's just It's like, oh, it's just this. I have one of these. This one's nice. Gold trim, still surviving. This one's uh, 1953. I have a nice glass kilner jar here with a slice of lime in it. Yeah, you see, I could go out and buy those, but I was being more environmentally friendly, right, by reusing royal... <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this shit. What has this podcast become? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Random Up Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news, and some very special guests. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, should we get into the show? I think let's talk about the password secure sharing tool, or PUST. PUST? Nope. No, nope. we can't say that out loud. <laughs> Have we figured out how we're going to say that now? That's the, that's the problem. So today is launch day for our new secure sharing tool. It is. I just watched the snazzy video that came out on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, we have begun rolling this out. Last night or this morning, we got some instructions on how this is going to go. And so today, like 15 minutes ago, we tweeted about the new thing, but we haven't put up the blog post or anything. So we, we tweeted about the new thing. It just said, Psst, we're announcing something new today. Take a sneak peek. And then it was a link. Oh, that's cool. So the link takes you to a, a shared item. Ooh. That's awesome. This is cool. I'm just watching the launch video. I like how usually we come to this informed about something and we have notes on it and everything. I like the fact that we're reacting to this. <laughs> I, I feel like a YouTuber reacting to something. <laughs> this looks great. Random but memorable react. <laughs> it's not that we didn't know that it was coming. This is like our first time sort of seeing the... The launch materials, Everything yeah. about it. Yes, exactly. So who wants to explain what the password secure sharing tool is? I mean, it says it in the name. So but... starting today, you can share virtually anything you have stored in your 1Password vault with anyone using a secure link that is also verified by email if you want it to. It can expire. It can do all of those things. By default, the link expires in seven days, but also you can choose to let it expire after 30 or 14 or one hour or after a single person views it. You can also let anyone who has the link view the item or restrict it sharing to only those whose email address you enter. Yeah, so you go to the product, hit share, share icon, not to be confused with the singer the button. So, <laughs> Sunny and share. Yeah. So then you click get link to share and you can then send that to anyone that you need to. Nice. This is so great. Uh, I have wanted something like this for a very long time. Yeah. It's really useful. From the admin side of it as well, it's really cool. Like within a business, you can see all the visibility of how these links have been shared, who they've been shared with. The activity log of this opens up a huge amount of visibility, I guess, to admins. Mm. So Matt, you and I could just ping our Wi-Fi passwords back and forth to each other. You could. Endlessly. I mean... Just for fun. After you've done it once, doesn't the fun end then? <laughs> who knows? I mean, specifically for, for the Wi-Fi items. I mean, but, you know, what if you change your password? Then then you got to do it again. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. I'm so stoked to get this thing out. We have wanted to build this 
for years, and I swear there have been three or four different hackathon weeks stretching back a few years where we've just like, this time we're going to solve it, we're going to build item sharing, it's going to be great. This year we finally finished it. I'm really excited about the, the user experience of this as well. The couple of hackathon attempts that we've had, when we build stuff inside 1Password, we generally start somewhere in the middle of a proof of concept and uh, some requirements and a design and some kind of you know mashup of all three. And this is genuine way that we tend to make things secure is like we encrypt stuff or we have giant codes and verify by email and all this kind of stuff. And every time you add some method of security, generally you add friction to it. And what I like that we've done here is we found a really good balance, I think of making this really nice and secure, but also not huge massive holes and hoops that you have to jump through in order to just get an item that someone sends to you. I'm going to start using this all the time. I share like accounting stuff back and forth with my accountant and things like that. This is just great for this. That's the thing I really like about it. There's very little friction. Actually, there's no friction. Like if you if someone can click a link to open a thing in a browser, they can see something that you sent them. So you're totally right. Like if I need to send my accountant secure information, if I need to send anybody something secure, like, oh, the, my neighbor is going to watch my dog for the weekend while we go away. Cool. I can send them the garage door code. This is very, very, very straightforward and easy. And like I can send a link to anybody, whether they're techie or not, they'll be able to get at this stuff. So let's jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Watchtower Weekly is where we go through some security news of the week, and it's named after one of the features inside 1Password that tells you when your passwords might be vulnerable or exposed in a data breach. So this first one, Twitch blames server error for the massive data leak. This is reported by the BBC, so you know it's a big one. Live streaming site Twitch says an error caused the unprecedented leak that recently posted vast amounts of sensitive data online. The leak took the form of a torrent file posted to online forums by an anonymous user. Its file structure contained folders containing payout information, business documents, under-the-hood software files and code, and even details of unreleased projects. And the payouts folder contained what appears to be the record of payments made to thousands of the biggest streamers on the platform over two years, showing many of the biggest brands earning millions of dollars. Several streamers told BBC News the payment data was accurate for their own earnings. The Amazon-owned company said that the breach had involved a Twitch server configuration change that was subsequently accessed by a malicious third party. As the investigation is ongoing, we are still in the process of understanding the full impact in detail, it said. Twitch's short statement shows that the company is in full crisis mode. The explanation for the hack is that there is some sort of human error with a server configuration. In other words, someone set up the computers that store Twitch's private data incorrectly, making it findable and, and downloadable to hackers. The company has not said when this mistake was made, but as Twitch streamers and viewers alike scrambled to change passwords, the, the company also said it has no indication that login details were compromised at this time. It did not store users' credit card information, and it was resetting all users' stream keys, the unique code used by streaming software, to broadcast the right Twitch account. So a lot more damage is now in store for Twitch. Candid West from cybersecurity company Acronis said... The breach is already harming Twitch on all fronts that count. The leaked data could contain nearly the full digital footprint of Twitch, making it one of the most severe data breaches of late. 
The download released online is also labelled part one, suggesting there may be more material yet to be posted. If I did this for dramatic effect, I think I would label it part one as well. Even if there was, you know, one part. Mm. So you don't need to change your Twitch password, I think is the um, one part, part one take home. This. I guess that's true. Yeah, sorry. I paused on that because some of the early reports coming out of this said that it was prior to them resetting all the stream keys. And so changing your password would also reset your, your stream key. The first day that was the recommended thing. But since then, I think we're fine. Yeah, I think they've they've realized how much is at stake here and has been released. Yeah, this isn't a good one. It's a big data breach and it seems to have likely been made by a single individual. Ouch. That's bananas. Which should not really be able to happen, right? I understand at some point there is one person that goes in and changes configurations for servers, and but, I don't know, some sort of mm. thing that goes around checking might be useful. And do you think Twitch streamers, or dare I say influencers, actually care about this enough that they would leave the platform? I mean, maybe it affects like having your, your earnings public like that. But mm. I doubt it. I'm just trying to think there's not many other rival platforms that are as big as Twitch. Like, it's like YouTube. Uh, I think but. people move between, yeah, I think people move between YouTube and Twitch mainly for publicity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. This next one, Apple forgot to sanitize the phone number field for lost AirTags. I've seen this reported as ways that you can weaponize AirTags. And I think if we're going for sen- sensationalist headlines... That's a pretty good one. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah. You can weaponize AirTags real easy. Yeah, you put them in a slingshot. Yeah. (laughs) Ping! (laughs) So security consultant and penetration tester Bobby Rauch discovered that Apple's AirTags, the tiny devices that can be affixed to frequently lost items like laptops, phones, or car keys. We had a previous episode where we discussed everything that we could then put them on. Yes. I'm going to add my bike into that as well. I just recently bought a bike. I'm trying to work out how i attach an air tag to it somehow (laughs) so basically if you lose an air tag you put it in what is called lost mode and this lost mode whenever it is found or nearby another device it pops up on the screen it opens found.apple.com because you have found an, an air tag that's random and in theory it would show that person's phone number and you could contact them and tell them, hey, I've, I've got your AirTag. You, you dropped it. The attack, otherwise known as a drop attack or a Good Samaritan attack, it, essentially they open found.apple.com and instead of showing a phone number, it would show this piece of code. In fact, it wouldn't show this piece of code. It would run the piece of code because it hasn't been sanitized. And then it would essentially infect that person's browser. It's pretty clever. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. I didn't quite understand at the beginning when they said they hadn't sanitized the phone number field. I thought it meant that people's phone numbers were sort of out in the wild for others to, like, grab. But no, this means that, like, the phone number field can be used to run scripts. That's not great. And also very clever. It's not great. Yeah, so this kind of attack as well doesn't need much technical know-how. The attacker simply types in valid cross-site scripting into the AirTag's phone number field and then puts the AirTag in loss mode drops it somewhere where someone is likely to find it. In theory, scanning a lost AirTag is a safe action. Apple wants people to do that. Then it embeds the content of that phone number field in the website as displayed on the victim's browser unsanitized. 
the most obvious way to exploit this would be some sort of cross-site scripting to pop up a fake iCloud login dialogue. Doesn't take much code, and that would be pretty bad. Loads of places are reporting this and have said that they've asked Apple for comment. But as far as I understand, this is still an issue. Yeah, not great. No. So, the next article. A company that routes billions of text messages quietly says it was hacked. A company that is a critical part of the global telecommunications infrastructure used by AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon and several others around the world, such as Vodafone and China Mobile, quietly disclosed that hackers were inside its systems for years. Uh, impacted more than 200 of its clients and potentially millions of cell phone users worldwide. The company, Cineverse, which you've probably never heard of, revealed in a filing dated 27th of September that an unknown individual or organization gained unauthorized access to databases within its network on several occasions and that login information allowing access to or from its electronic data transfer was compromised for approximately 235 of its customers. Yeesh. Yeah. So a former Cineverse employee who worked on the EDT systems told Motherboard that those systems have information on all types of call records. According to a person who worked at a telephone carrier, whoever hacked Cineverse could have had access to metadata such as length, cost, callers and receivers numbers, the location of the parties in the call, as well as the content of SMS messages. This type of thing is why iMessage exists, right? Because yeah. we we really need some idea of how to secure this type of information because it's it's kind of wild at this point. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that I've said in text messages that I wouldn't want the world to see and i'm sure the majority of people could say that (laughs) (laughs) yeah the company wrote that it discovered the breach in may 2021 and that the hack began on may 2016 that is a long while cineverse's access to communications of hundreds of millions if not billions of people around the world a five-year breach of one of cineverse's main systems is a global privacy disaster said carsten knoll a security researcher Cineverse systems have direct access to phone call records and text messaging and indirect access to a large range of internet protected accounts with two-factor authentication. Yet another reason not to use SMS as two-factor authentication. With all that information, someone could build a profile on you. They'll know exactly what you're doing, who you're calling, what's going on. You can link multiple people to others. How long a voicemail was when it was left. All of that kind of stuff. This is kind of terrifying. I think this is like, it's not getting reported because there isn't a name like Twitch associated with it. No one knows who, what was it? Cynodyne. Cineverse. Cineverse. from the Terminator. (laughs) Cyberdyne. Cyberdyne. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I mean, that's more well known than this, right? (laughs) Uh, It might as well be called Cyberdyne. Just like, sorry, what was their name even? Who cares? No one knows. (laughs) You just read it 40 seconds ago. Mm. They only route billions of text messages. Exactly. This is a big deal. But I feel like it isn't being reported on because of being a no-name, being a middleman. But we've reported on it, so we've done a a good job, a good thing. Oh, our our journalistic integrity is very high. (laughs) I'm going to clip that and use that in every show. (laughs) (laughs) Journalist integrity is really high. That can be a promo for the podcast. (sighs) So, Rue, you sat down with Byron Nick this week for This Week at 1Password. Yeah, it was fun to have Bayer and Nick on to talk about 
honestly, we dove a lot into the history of the One Password browser extension, which was kind of fun, just talking about its origins and why we built it. And then we talked, of course, about its inclusion in our iOS 15 update for One Password 7 for iOS, which is really huge. I think we'll probably, if I had to guess, we'll drop it in here. Stopping by for this week at One Password, our buyer, browser experience lead, and Nick, browser engineering manager for the browser extension. And today, I'm hoping we can dive into everything that's new with One Password for Safari in iOS 15 and the future of One Password in the browser. Uh, buyer, Nick, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Been a busy week, but happy to be here. I'm also doing very well. It's been a, a great week of listening to all the feedback we've been getting from the One Password for Safari and FastMail launches and getting those things fixed up or moved on on. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely been cool to see the proliferation of the browser extension across some different platforms that we've not had it before, which is, is very, very cool. And then also, yeah, the FastMail stuff, which we've talked about on the show before, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get into a little bit today, too. Can we... I want to do introductions, because like obviously I know you guys very well. Well, but that doesn't mean that our listeners do. So why don't we do some introductions? You tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you handle under the umbrella of the browser experience, and we'll go from there. So, Bayer, why don't you start? Sure. My full name's Andrew Bayer, but as Rue alluded to here, we both kind of go by different names around the house. So everyone just kind of calls me Bayer. I have been working here at 1Password for almost five years now. I've actually been a 1Password user for like almost 15 years now. Kind of lost count, but the majority of my background experience is in uh, computer networking and some air and missile defense for the United States Army. So I spent 10 years there previously. I've uh, kind of worked myself up to be the lead of the Browser Experience Engineering Organization, which is the newest of our engineering organizations here at 1Password. And primarily, we're in charge of the extension that you use across all the platforms on desktop, as well as now iOS and iPadOS. And we're starting to kind of take over a little bit more of the web UI and those kind of things. So we're going to be in 2022 working on things like making the onepassword.com vault view a little bit more consistent with the updated onepassword design language that we have here. So I think that's a little bit about me. Nick, how about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Byer. So myself, I'm Nick. I joined about two and a half years ago, and I don't have quite as much experience, but I've been using onepassword for nearly 10 years. So it's been a really fun journey to use the product for so long and then come join and get to be a part of helping shape the extension and, and other parts of the, the 1Password experience. And my day-to-day -day now is being the engineering manager for the team. And so helping to lead and guide on some of the projects that we've been working on. So the 1Password for Safari project and the FastMail integration are all things that our team has been most recently working on to produce new interesting features that our customers are really engaging with. Yeah, very cool. So what has been the experience like building the browser extension? This is, for those that have used 1Password for a long time, this is what I would consider our second extension that we introduced a few years ago now. How did it start out? And did you set out to do things differently than we've done in the past? The new extension that we use in 1Password actually started off as a brand new project almost four years ago. And so one of our founders, Dave Tier, he decided that he didn't really enjoy the extension experience and he was having difficulty getting other people excited about the prospect of changing it. So he kind of just took it upon himself to start what we launched originally as called 1Password X. At one point, we were going to call it 1Password for Linux. So that's how long ago this was. It was before we even had a Linux app for 1Password. But the main goal of it was, can we build, you know, it, with the, the latest web technologies that we have now, can we build an entire 1Password client? 
that runs from within your web browser. There's a lot of things that kind of made that a reality. Obviously, computers became fast enough where web technologies are blazing fast now. Web crypto APIs, we kind of learned a lot about and our use of creating the original 1Password memberships. And then, of course, reactive frameworks like React are just really good way to lay out and kind of have a UI. I was the third person to join that project. So there's Dave and, and our lead designer, Dan. And it was really interesting, right? Like we basically made an app. At some point, we ended up having to ship it. <laughs> As you do, you, you basically have to ship it, even if it doesn't have feature parity with everything that you want to support. And we launched it as 1PasswordX, and originally it was kind of like a private beta for our Linux users because this was the only way outside of like running 1Password through Wine or something like that where you could run 1Password on Linux. And as a side bonus, you can also you know use it on Chrome OS. That's kind of where we started. And I think over the last few years, we've actually redesigned some things. We've added in additional functionality. And it's really been kind of the testbed for a lot of new projects in the company that have been folks like Dan, our designer, have always wanted, right? So the inline menu is a great example of that. If you go back far enough, WWDC keynotes, you'll actually see Roostum demoing something like an inline menu filling on Safari during a WWDC keynote. But once it came down to like the technical details and get everything, it just wasn't ready yet, right? And so 1PasswordX and now just the you know main 1Password experience is a really great place because we got to put in all sorts of new functionality into 1Password. It's also a great experience for someone who just is getting started with 1Password. You know, a lot of times the best way to experience 1Password is by saving your first few logins and filling your first few logins in the browser. And now you can do that just by installing this browser extension. I think what we set out to do was build a 1Password client in the browser. And we absolutely accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, to the point of like, you know, where this extension started from being different than the last one, it was something I hadn't even really used a whole lot until I joined the company. And then I saw sort of the the different way that we could build an extension in the browser and really take advantage of the fact that, you know, we're directly with the, the user wherever they are. So being able to offer suggestions directly in front of them and using that to integrate with things like FastMail and Privacy.com, where now we can suggest not only strong, unique passwords or smart passwords, but also the ability to offer an email or the ability to create a credit card directly from within a website are things that have completely opened up because of the way that we've worked, made this browser extension work. And it was also a a really good boon when it came to Safari and specifically Safari on iOS, because the tooling that Apple gave us at WWDC this year allowed us to take all of the parts that we used on the desktop, Chrome OS, et cetera, and, and bring them to iOS. And so now the experience that all of our users were getting on their desktop clients is now the experience that they can get directly on Safari wherever they are. So that was a really fun thing. And, and another really interesting thing of the experience of building was most of the time the extension of the browser experience group doesn't really have a deadline set by another company. And so in this case, iOS 15 was a date that we didn't know beforehand. We, you know, we can all read the room and try and figure out, you know, based on last year or past history, what the date's going to be. But there was a, a point where we were building something, building through betas, you know, figuring bugs, filing issues and communicating with the, the people at Apple to, to make the best experience and bring the one password experience to Safari for our users on 
on iPad and iPhone. And that's something that I had a lot of fun with this past three and a half months. Yeah, the WWDC announcement with an arrow drawn to the fall launches is something that the Apple team in particular has always sort of embraced and hit. So it was really cool to see you all get to join in with that fun this year. It brings up another question, though, which is as the browser extension is bundled and packaged and distributed through now we've got actually distributed in our apps. How is the experience of, of actually building it and distributed changed for you over the years? I wouldn't say it's changed too much, really. One of the things about building a browser extension at our scale and trying to meet the needs of our customer, no matter where they are, means that we do have to deal with pretty much every major tech company outside of Facebook, right? So we deal with Microsoft, Mozilla, Google, and now Apple. And so each one of those companies runs kind of a different store for distribution. They have different rules uh, for distribution within their browsers. And so we have to kind of work within all of those. But one of the really cool things about the browser extension and really the overall mission here at 1Password, essentially, we get to write pretty much the same code. You know, there's a little bit of a tweak we need to do for Safari. There's a couple tweaks we got to do for Firefox. But really, at its core, it's the same code getting deployed everywhere, right? And it gets a little stressful when store rules change or you get, you know, rejected for reviews. Or an example is Mozilla actually requires all of the source code to be uploaded if you minified. You know, there's all these rules and it does take kind of a significant amount of effort to actually get a release out. But the cool thing is that the development, the design... All of that is actually very consistent and pretty much done once and, and released everywhere. Yeah, and I think to add to that a little bit, I mean, it's definitely, like Byer said, I mean, something that we've gotten used to as we've added more stores and gone from from Chrome only to now yeah, any browser you want, you can find our application in or our extension in. I think the, the one thing I'd love to continue there is like we get to work on an experience with all the different teams internal to the company, you know, our design teams, our product team, and really like get to build this one experience that we get to deploy all over the place. And so the experience that you get on the iPad is is almost the same experience you now get on like a Mac or a, a Linux machine. And we get to sort of bring that one look or that one one password design all over. You touched on the fact that like, you know, we've we've kind of got we've got the browser extension on almost every platform now. I think that Android is is probably the only place where we're not shipping the extension. And I might even say shipping the extension yet what sort of benefits are we i want to say i'm going to ask it two ways one i want to say like what benefits are our customers going to see from the fact that we have our browser extension available everywhere and then like what benefits are we seeing internally from the same fact yeah so i think the benefits the customer sees is when you're in a browser and and this is really like i'm more of an apple guy this kind of applies this obviously applies to android and chrome os as well but for Apple, at least, you know, we've seen this trend where both iOS and iPadOS have been coming more and more feature rich with desktop, right, with a Mac. So we saw a couple of years ago when Apple released basically the full desktop Safari on iPad. The browser extension coming to these platforms now is really the desktop experience coming to these platforms as well. So from day one of the you know iOS and iPadOS extension, users already unlocked kind of a whole bunch of new functionality. So for example, you can use the in-page suggestions to conduct filling across multiple pages, which was never something we could do on iOS before just because of the limitations of the APIs available to us. You can do really cool things like set up multi-factor authentication by scanning a QR code directly there in the browser from your item in 1Password. And I think that is the... The other big thing, right, is 
although we had an app extension before, we were still kind of working within what APIs we had access to inside the browser. Now with web extensions coming to iOS, and, and I would bet they're probably coming to Android as well for the folks that don't know, Google and Apple actually started a uh, W3C community working group to kind of standardize the web extension APIs that will be coming out in the future or, you know, like the updates. So there's an engineer from Apple and there's a developer advocate from Google that basically are the chairs for this community group. And so this is the place where they're kind of discussing the future of web extensions. And I think it's a good signal that they're here to stay and one password will be able to leverage these to bring that same consistent experience across like pretty much everywhere you're using it, right? And so I think that's the big change for the customers. For us as developers, I think the big change is where we would previously maybe be more reserved in investing in an integration like Nick has been mentioning, Fastmail. We have this new integration with Fastmail where you can create these mass email aliases. Little shout out to a previous episode where that was talked about. But the thing before was we always knew if we we're going to build something into the browser extension, we we're kind of constrained to desktop users, right? And now with it kind of broadening out to mobile platforms as well, we can really write that same feature, create that same integration and kind of have it access everywhere. And the browser is a really cool place to use 1Password because this is where we get additional context, right? If you're on a page, if you're on google.com or slash dot dot org and you're saving a login, we know exactly where you came from. We can use information from the browser, like the title of the page to suggest login names. It's honestly the best place to create new items and bring more of your life into one password. And that's really what we're trying to do in the future. You know, it's not all about passwords and not all about logins. Wouldn't it be great if you could just save your medical records right from your doctor's website directly into one password or save your API token directly from GitHub right into one password and then use it with something like our secrets automation. And so I am obviously biased, but I see the browser extension being that pinnacle point to like really modernizing 1Password in the future, as well as just opening up a, just a whole suite of functionality to make 1Password really the place for your, your digital life and, and security and well-being. I think to keep going with something Bayer mentioned in there, from the development point of view, we always try and build features and bring them everywhere, right? So for some of the integrations and some of our more recent features, we try and build it in so that it could be used within the desktop app or within the, the mobile app, make sure that our features do land everywhere. But this allows us to even offer the exact same experience. And so even before when we couldn't, you know, offer directly, you know, an email alias or a privacy card directly from the web page, we could offer it only in other places. Now we can deliver the exact same experience. And so when someone's trying to go sign up to Netflix or go check out at Amazon, those are things that they can do directly well in Safari or within whatever browser they find themselves within. Yeah, the ease at which this allows us to proliferate those integrations that have been getting built into the browser extension is the thing that definitely excites me the most, right? Like when we rolled out privacy, I was like, oh God, this is so freaking cool. But like, I also, I want this when I'm checking out on my mobile device. Quite honestly, like that's where I do most of my shopping. So I missed it there. And now I don't. And same with the fast mail integration, same with all the integrations going forward, or even things like our save in one password button, which is shows up on different sites. Like we have the ability to deploy that functionality out to wherever you happen to be browsing the web now. And it's very, very cool. 
Yeah, I think for the folks who haven't tried out the 1Password 7.8 update that includes the browser extension, you really have to use it to believe it, right? You know, the number of people that just use their phone as their only computing device is is only going up. And so if you go and try out the extension and use it, you'll probably immediately connect with the fact that like, holy cow, I used to have to fill twice here, right? Because it was across forms or I used to have to, you know, press and hold to paste my TOTP code. And now that auto fills and that whole experience has just gotten so much better. But also there's a whole bunch of functionality we've been releasing over the past year, like being able to save items and update the actual fields and like remove fields you don't need from the items. This is something that, you know, one password basically has never had in the browser since we started. So I think people are going to be really happy with it. And I think over the next 12 to 18 months, it's going to be almost a completely different product for them, which is super, it's a super exciting time for us and I hope for our customers as well. Yeah. Yep, for sure. So this next one's a little nerdy, a little inside baseball, but also I think it's kind of fun for people to hear this. What are you two particularly proud of in terms of the architecture and the 1Password ecosystem as it pertains to the to the browser extension? The really cool thing about the extension from a architecture standpoint is you'd be surprised how much work we actually have to do as a 1Password client to run completely as a client in the browser, right? We're not your typical web service or anything like that. We don't even perform the same type of authentication you would find in in another web service. So we're doing all sorts of cool things like decrypting vault keys and items and getting overviews and parsing all this kind of information. So like architecture wise, I would argue that 1Password is one of the most sophisticated web extensions out there. And it's not because I work here. It's just the amount of stuff we actually end up having to do is very intense. What's cool about and what I I guess what I'm most proud about is the fact of like how much of the extension and our web client share the same APIs. So when we kicked off this extension, we essentially just took some APIs that were already designed for onepassword.com and we were almost up and running, ready to go. And we've expanded that. Like we saw the value of, okay, we're sharing some backend code between our web client and the browser extension. Can we do more of that, right? And that's where a couple of years ago, we started rewriting a lot of our code to be more cross-platform. So we started in Go because that's what our infrastructure is built on. But what we learned from doing that was we really wanted to be able to write some code and run it everywhere across all of our clients, including the browser extension and ultimately the web. And so about two years ago, we ended up switching to Rust to do that. And now today, the browser extension uses a ton of the same code that you would see running on our mobile apps and our desktop clients. So one example of this is that that time based one-time password, when we compute that value, you're actually running the exact same code path in every client across, whether it be seven or eight, whether it be on the web or browser extension, that's the exact same code path. And so when you're on the desktop, that's compiled locally to your architecture. When you're on the web, we use WebAssembly to kind of interface with that code in a library fashion and, and kind of get that. So from an architecture standpoint, I think we sometimes press a little too far into the future and and look at things that are not quite ready for our scale, but we dial it back pretty quickly into something that works really well for us. And I think the most exciting part is now that we really do have any new feature we bring to the browser extension, we're writing it once and it can be used anywhere, which is really cool. Yeah, the thing that I'm most proud of is that we take a whole bunch of different unique technologies and we bring them all together in a way that 
is seemingly seamless to the user. And so when someone's using all of the different parts of the, the extension, they don't know all the stuff that's going on underneath the covers. All the different things we're doing to make sure that when we inject directly into the page is hidden in such a way that, you know, the normal website can't see it or the fact that that's written in a different UI front-end language than our pop-up, which where we can share sort of components between that pop-up and our other clients like the desktop app. There's a whole bunch of fun, unique challenges that go into all of these things and at the end of the day, it all just sort of comes together to make this one cohesive product that a user just uses and, and doesn't even think about the fact of how it's all implemented. And as we use a little bit more Rust, I mean, part of what our team does is we build the filling logic. And so when you go to fill a website or you go to fill any sort of thing in the browser extension, that's all written by our team in Rust. And that logic actually gets to be shared among all of our different clients. And so now when you go try and fill something in Android from the Android app, it's using the same sort of code paths that our browser extension is using to figure out where's the password, where's the username field, what is this page should I offer, you know, to create a login or maybe a password. And the work the team gets to do to bring all these features to life is probably one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah, uh, for the nerds of the uh, the listening to the podcast, currently we have 11 people on my team, including myself. And across those 11 people, Our technology stack requires knowledge in HTML, CSS and SAS, JavaScript, TypeScript, React.js, Svelte.js, Swift. We even wrote some Swift UI for that aforementioned startup screen on the macOS 1Password for Safari extension. And then, of course, a ton of Rust compiled to WebAssembly. So I would say we're probably one of the smallest teams within 1Password but using some of the most diverse set of technologies to get our job accomplished. And I, and I think that's what I'm most proud of, right? We take the right technology and use it for the right task. And we don't try to say, all right, we're going to use Svelte.js everywhere because we only want to know one thing, right? No, we look at a problem, we find the technology that can solve that problem most efficiently and most effectively. And then we go learn and master that technology and put it to use. And I think we will continue doing that over, over the coming years. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Last question. We got to make sure that we hit the plugs. Where can people go to find the 1Password browser extension in 1Password for iOS? Let's start there. Well, it depends on how you want to learn. But personally, what I would do is I would just go down there to your local app store on your iPhone and look for 1Password 7 and download it and make sure you're on iOS 15 and update. And you'll be greeted with a little what's new screen to get you set up. But what's really cool is once you install the app, the extension will be there right right there in Safari. You can tap on the AA puzzle piece menu button. The technical Um, term. I think is the uh, unofficial (laughs) term. I'm not sure if Apple has an official (laughs) term there. And uh, see 1Password and turn it on. We have a blog post that was published recently entitled 1Password Safari is here for iOS 15, and it's life-changing. I actually had a little bit of pushback on that terminology. It was like, is it really life-changing? I was like, yes, yes, it really is life-changing. And of course, you can always go to uh, support.1password.com and just type in Safari iOS and get a really nice support article to walk you through how to use it. And I think those are the main medias. That's awesome. Nick Byer, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is I always love when we do interviews with folks inside the company. So thanks for being here and congratulations on the launch. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having us. Hey, this is a great time to be here because we are super proud of the Safari web extension and we really hope it makes everyone else as happy as it makes us. Okay, so are we ready for three-word password? Oh, my God. I'm so ready. So this is 8.0 episode. So Uh this is the last ever three-word password. No, no one's come up with a new game. So we keep doing this one. Oh, Oh, we have come up with several games. I lay awake at night 
thinking of potential password games sometimes and i came up with two today so we're going to play test both of those which is basically like seeing how bad we can play it uh, and and still make it recordable that's gonna be fun i mean we play tested this game and it was a terrible terrible playthrough and yet we still ended up <laughs> creating this as a segment so that doesn't sound confident <laughs> Why why are we bothering playing testing? Well, you know, it worked in the end. All right. Well, can't (laughs) wait to play the uh, last three word password ever. It is the single worst way to share a password, especially now we have item sharing out. (laughs) (laughs) We use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. And here we go. Okay, so first clue is a large extinct elephant-like mammal that inhabited North and Central America around 13,000 years ago. Its name means breast tooth for the nipple-like projections on the crowns of its molars. It is also the name of an American heavy metal band from Atlanta. I mean, is it just mammoth? Mammoth? It's not mammoth. Mm. Rhino? Nope. Oh, extinct. It is extinct. Crucial point, that Breast tooth. First of all, that's a horrible term. Yep. I think we're going to have to skip this one and go on to the next one, you know. It's going to have to noodle on this one. I guess so. Defeated already. I mean, yeah, right out the gate. All right. I mean, what is extinct an elephant like, apart from a mammoth? A woolly mammoth. Yeah, exactly. What's the one from Lord of the Rings called? An, an oliphant. You know, the one that they have that terrible scene where he slides down the, the trunk. An oliphant. Yeah, is it an oliphant? No. Okay. Great. That is one of the coolest scenes of all time, though, when Legolas slips down the trunk of that thing. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. Terrible. The worst. The worst scene in the Lord of the Rings is when he throws down that shield <laughs> and slides down the staircase. Oh no! Blasphemy! Just don't even talk to me. Um, that. Those are my two ideas. I'm all out. Okay. So second clue. It is. You could use this word to describe a garden or a person who is thin and physically weak in appearance. The word features in everything from Shakespeare to a Flight of the Concord song and is often paired with shy in descriptions. I feel like this game should be scored. And I, I know this is the last time we play it, but I feel like it should be scored. Is that you only get a point if one of us manages to guess it because it's supposed to be like almost there, but not quite right. You still have to share the cryptic password, but these seem really difficult. <laughs> Now that you're on the receiving end of it. I know I'm complaining now because I'm the one time on the receiving end. Yeah. yeah. Weak in appearance. All right. So, so there's frail, but it's you wouldn't describe a garden as frail. That's the crucial part of this clue. Oh. Is it reedy? It's very close, but it's not reedy. Is it weedy? It is weedy. Well oh, it's, done. It's weedy. There we go. One out of three so far. So final one. This excellent noun is an act or an incident involving excitement, daring or adventure. In England, you may use this term to describe a particularly stressful or eventful trip to the supermarket. An eventful trip to the supermarket. Is it a quest? It is not a quest. I like it though. Okay, be honest. How many times did you actually hit the... I've never heard what a boondoggle is, so... Okay, I didn't figure you would. I wouldn't say it's a boondoggle trip to Sainsbury's. How many times did you press the password generator to get this? Three. But the other two were more difficult than this. <laughs> Some of the words that come up, I swear. Oh, yeah. The random password generator. Like, if you were to write a story with it. It's the most intelligent being on the planet, surely. A dash? No. I, I might be thinking too much of uh, Supermarket Sweep. <laughs> Could you give us another clue? For the first one, 
It was N, so you are correct with the first. Oh, I swear to God, if you finish typing the word mammoth, I'm going to flip my <laughs> desk over. Like, what the hell? <laughs> we said mammoth. What's the Twitter network? Oh, the Mastodon. Thing that was, yeah, Mastodon. Yes, you got it. Mastodon. We got it after you pretty much wrote half the word. <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. Terrible effort. All right, give us the first letter of this last one, please. First letter is... You'll get it instantly, I reckon. E. An errand? No. An experience? An escapade? An escapade is correct. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I would never describe an escapade as going to the supermarket. No. I would say going to the supermarket, you have a terrible time. You're just trying to get to the kitchen roll, all right? And you just can't. You had an escapade for it. It was a you? right old escapade. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to... I think this is a fitting end for... No! No! I hate it. I hate that we're going to go out like this. You actually got them all in the end with uh, a lot of yeah. a lot of help. I actually got them all in the end. Give me a Mastodon Weedy Escapade. That was draining. I don't like it. I usually leave that game energized for the rest of my day. This time, I'm angry. I'm going into the rest of my day angry. Yep. Woe betide anyone who I speak to next. I think we can be as angry as we like now throughout the day. Enjoy your angry escapades. <sighs> do, do you know well, what? I'm going to use the word escapade at least in a meeting coming up. At least once. Yeah, see if you can slip one of these in a sentence <laughs> today. <gasps> All right. On that note, goodbye to three-word password. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the, the look on your face, Rue, is just of upset because you're just terrified of what's next. Rue ends up hating every single game. I don't <laughs> hate the game. I love this game. And I'm, I just and hate I'm the di- players. I'm, <laughs> shut up. I hate how this one ended. I think this is a shit send-off for a game that I've loved. Okay. The next one I don't think is going to be trivia-based. So we're back to just nonsense guessing, which is, I think, the games that you hate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm upset. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.